Hello, and welcome to Responsible, a podcast series in which senior leaders from all walks of life tell us about the experiences that made them and the wisdom they'd like to pass on. This is the second part of my interview with Naveed Sultan, chairman of the Institutional Clients Group at City and the establishing partner of Imperial College Business School's Center for Responsible Leadership, which I direct and for which this podcast is produced. If you didn't catch the first pod where I speak with Naveed about his roots in Pakistan, early influences on his career, and how they encouraged the importance of diversity to his leadership practice, make sure to give it a listen. In that conversation, Naveed quoted one leader in particular. I start here by asking him if it was that leader, Nelson Mandela, who's inspired him the most. So I'm curious about, you, you've mentioned Mandela a few times. Is he the leader that you most admire? Yeah. So, Celia, I mean, you know, like I said, I, you know, I look for inspiration in unusual places, in everyday interaction with people. And if you have keen observation or appreciation, it is amazing how inspiring it can be. But in terms of leaders, there's one leader which I really admire, which is, you know, I already quoted Nelson Mandela a couple of times. And why I do that amongst his many qualities. If you think about, he was in prison for 27 years. Out of those 27 years, 18 years was in Robben Island. And he was, for 18 years, he was in a cell, 2.4 meter by 2.1 meter. And he himself was 1.85 meter, the tall guy. He had a straw mat on which to sleep. He had a bucket in the same room to attend to his natural needs. He would break rocks into gravel throughout and then they moved him to lime quarry. Within that prison, he was the lowest category of prisoners, which was category D. And he could only get one letter in six months. And again, that was censored. But at night, he was working for his law degree from University of London through correspondence. What really impressed me was his generosity of his spirit and his capacity to forgive and build and bring a nation together, which was plagued by apartheid and racism. And he said, as I walked out the door toward my freedom, I knew that if I did not leave all the anger, hatred and bitterness behind, that I would still be in prison. And you will achieve more in this world through acts of mercy than you with the, through acts of retribution. And I think his, his capacity to forgive and his generosity of his soul and spirit is absolutely extraordinary. Uh, that is what I really admire him. I'm, I, I have read about him a lot. I visited the Robben Island and I spent about three, four hours there. But that is one man who really inspires me. I was able to take my kids to South Africa during a trip that I led with a, a group of exec MBA students. And the part of that whole experience that I was happiest about was getting to take them to Robben Island. All right. Oh, great. It is, it is difficult with a, with a level of privilege that I have grown up with and exist in to try and make sure that you raise your children to understand how different their experience is and how fortunate they are. And that was a that was something that I that I found really valuable. I I also really like your your thoughts on forgiveness because um, there, there's and I of course now can't remember her name, 
a theologian who talks about forgiveness as being a truly radical act, that people tend to think of forgiveness as, as saying that what the person that you're forgiving was okay is okay. And her point is, it's not saying that it's okay, but it is saying that I am not going to be kept prisoner, as you say, to negative feelings. I am liberated if I forgive. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. I remembered his name. It's Colin Tipping, who wrote the original book on radical forgiveness. So actually, segueing from, from forgiveness, forgiveness is a really interdependent uh, practice, um, which brings us to the, to the question of culture. So let's talk a little bit about your teams now. How important is building the right culture for the effectiveness of the work that you do? You know, in my view, culture is one of the most talked about subjects, uh, but it is not as well understood. Uh, and if you really think about the performance of any enterprise, be it commercial or otherwise, culture is actually the most important driver of that outcome. And it really determines the success or otherwise of an organization. In, in many ways, the corporate culture and its values determines the job performance and affinity of the employees with the organization and its mission. So when an individual or as an employee, as such as myself, finds a genuine and meaningful alignment with his or her personal values, with those of his or her employers, a very powerful connection or affinity develops and which leads to significant possibilities of personal growth as well as the success and growth of the company. Well, what you've said is actually completely supported by what we know from research, both about fit, right, that, that both companies and individuals thrive when there's a good fit between the personal values of the individual and the values of the company. So one of the questions that I had for you about culture was, we know that culture is, is radically important, but we also know that culture is really hard to change. And I'm involved right now in, in a project with City on culture change. And despite people having really the right intentions and the right actions, it's still a really hard thing to do. Tell me about a time that you had success in changing culture. I absolutely agree with that. Uh, culture is something which is not very tangible. It's very intangible. And while it is one of the most important drivers of success, it's also one of the most difficult ones to change or shape. So in my view, I think the primary responsibility of leaders is to forge a culture which at its core have the right value system. So ethics, very important, trust, diversity, merit, and actually also reflects the societal values. So if you look at where the world is right now, we have so many ex externalities, so much pressure both from a socioeconomic point of view, productivity growth, demographics, pandemics, and changing attitudes towards life generally. So it's even more important that when you have 
the transition of this nature or the environmental factors like the one I mentioned, and of course, I've, I did not mention the technological revolution which is underway. And if you look at the cocktail of all those factors, it points to one very important uh, topic, which is to say we have to shape a culture which is responsive to all those challenges. And so according to a recent survey by the National Bureau of Economic Research, and this actually goes to your question, 85% of CEOs and CFOs believes that an unhealthy culture leads to unethical outcomes. And in the same survey, nine out of 10 CFOs believe that improving company's culture can increase business value and performance. But almost half of the employees, about 45% of the employees say, even though the CEOs and CFO believe that it's very important for the performance of the company to have the right culture, 45% of the employees say that leaders are minimally or not committed to improving the culture of the organization. So there is a disconnect there that it is accepted that it's very important, but from an employee's point of view, uh, there's not enough effort being made to improve the culture. And that disconnect actually does create very significant issues for the uh, organizations. Well, I think one of the reasons why that's particularly challenging is that culture is hard to measure. And a leader's role in creating culture is hard to measure. And if it's hard to measure, it's hard to quantify. If it's hard to quantify, it doesn't get into performance reviews. You know, in my view, organization takes on the character and the culture of its leaders. And while we can have our mission statements, we can have, you know, artifacts communicating our value system and what is expected and what do we stand for, what is our purpose and all the rest of it. But the most important way or most effective way to change the culture is the behavior which the leaders exhibit. And if leaders embrace those values which they are professing or trying to incorporate into the culture of the organization, then they have to act accordingly. And I think the most powerful mechanism to change the culture is that leaders talk the talk, and also walk the walk. And if the leaders are embracing those values, they will filter through the rest of the organization and they will get institutionalized. I think that's a really hopeful message because the only thing that we can really control is our own behavior. And sometimes we can't really even control that very well. Um, But to the extent that we can, right, speaking to leaders we all have control over the microcultures that we create around us. And then those in aggregate become the culture of the organization. So I think culture change can often be pretty overwhelming because you're trying to steer a really, really big ship and that takes a long time to shift, shift directions. But what's within our span of control, right? We actually have quite a lot of leeway in terms of how we shift, um, and, and, uh, scope. Uh, and mold that one leader at a time. Yeah. You know, it's, it's very interesting. You said your, uh, I think the term you use is your own microculture. The, the way I think about this is essentially the extension of the same point. You know, every organization probably has an overarching culture or at least endeavors to have an overarching culture 
with some common principles, which I talked about, you know, ethics, trust, diversity, merit, inclusion, and all the rest of it. But there are lots of subcultures which exist under that overarching culture. And one of the most important things, and in my observation, the job of the leaders is that they are not only embracing principles of that overarching culture, but they are also trying to keep the subcultures in the right balance so that one subculture does not dominate the others. And when that happens, the organization delivers the best possible outcome. But if one subculture dominates the others, then you start seeing suboptimal business decisions, suboptimal talent decisions, and that accumulates into creating a suboptimal company, a suboptimal performance of the company. So I, I think your point gives a even another unique perspective that all of us individually as leaders also have a severe of influence, what they call the shadow of the leader. So we all of us have to be very conscious of whether or not we are embracing those core values and then endeavoring to make sure that the subcultures stay in a healthy balance so we can create the best possible outcome for the company and for the individuals. You mentioned individuals there. In order to get a balanced culture, how do you go about developing the right talent and celebrating the right kind of merit? Talent is really the essence of any enterprise. And any enterprise, I think the primary responsibility remains that how do you provide an environment where a talent or people can fulfill their potential. And that can take many forms. So one is culture, whether or not the values of the enterprise or organization resonate with the employees. That's the prerequisite for people to be inspired with a sense of purpose. And then come the question of what I call apprenticeship. So you have formal mechanisms of growing the talent. But I think the informal mechanisms, which is learning on the job, learning from your peers, your seniors, even people who work for you, because that interaction has to be consciously shaped in a manner that people every day are learning from each other. So that is an extraordinary important responsibility on all of us, not just the leaders, that the way we interact with each other, the way we are collaborating with each other, we are providing an opportunity to people to learn from each other. That's extraordinarily important because even if you look at, and Celia, I'm sure you are more aware than I am, that a high percent, about 70% of the learning actually happens on the job, which is kind of informal rather than going through the you know formal trainings. So that is extraordinarily important. The second thing is about merit, and I think that speaks to the socioeconomic issues we are talking about. And oftentimes I heard expression, and I tend to agree with the, what they call tyranny of merit, which essentially assumes that everyone has the same starting point. And therefore, the one who succeeds is done purely based on his or her talent, hard work, and his or her success is purely attributable to his or her endeavors. Actually, in reality, it's very different. The reality is that not everyone has the same starting point. And that's what leads to socioeconomic issues because 
if you have the right access to education, you have the right access to employment opportunities, are you operating in an environment which is conducive and gives you a lot more exposure and opportunities if you are born, let's say, in a poor country or you're born in a poor household? And by the way, it is not a phenomenon just in a different countries. It is happening within developed markets, some of the most advanced economy. So I think that is part of the socioeconomic issues which we really have to address. Then comes the question that how you grow people within an organization. And in my humble view, I think that was the point I was earlier making, that if you let one subculture become a dominant culture, that subculture dictates the standards for merit, who grows into positions of responsibility and who doesn't. And at the same time, that brings in unconscious biases into determining who is progressing in the organization or not. So I think it's absolutely critical that the leaders or people who are responsible, uh, they should make sure that they are aware of their unconscious biases. They broaden their frame of reference in terms of experience, in terms of what the talent looks like, what the merit looks like, and broaden their imagination. i give you one very good example. You know, our uh, current prime minister of Pakistan, uh, Imran Khan, he, he was an international uh, sportsman and very accomplished one, talented cricketer. He comes from a family of cricketers. His two elder cousins, first cousins, also played for Pakistan. And both of them actually captained Pakistan test cricket in, in a cricket-mad nation like Pakistan. And both of those cousins were his idols. So when he became the captain of Pakistan cricket team at a very young age, one of his cousins was still playing test cricket. In his first test match as a captain, he did not select his cousin, who was like an elder brother, his idol for the team. And you know the, what he said? He said, doesn't matter, he's my relative or he's not, whether I... He was my, he's my ideal or not. If his performance is not of the standard, he will not be in the team. And for next many years, they did not speak to each other. The same man is now the prime minister of our country and trying to navigate the country through one of the most difficult periods of its existence. And not a single person from his family is part of his government. In a country where you have political dynasties, if I become prime minister, my son, my daughter, my nephew, they're all in politics. I mean, not just in Pakistan. <laughs> Almost any country, there are dynasties. Exactly. So I just wanted to give you the example that you have to rise above your personal likes and dislikes. And in my previous role, I would always say to people, and I will say it publicly, that no matter how you seem uh, close to me, or I may have a much longer association with you than somebody else. But when it comes to making appointments, if you're not the right person, I think, I may get it wrong, you know, everyone is, but it will not be because I have a longer association with you. The person who I think deserve that job, meets the criteria, will get the job, doesn't matter whether I know that person or not. And that's a principle I have always tried to 
embrace. So I think this notion of talent, apprenticeship, developing talent, then taking a view on merit, which is very important that that's a broader issue working with policymakers and we as enterprise also have a role to play in it, that we give people opportunities who are disadvantaged socially and economically to get their education and have equal opportunities. And when you are making the decision about career progressions, you have to let go or at least be aware of your unconscious biases, your personal likes and dislikes, and make the decision as much as humanly possible on an objective basis of the job fit. And talent, merit, and culture, they all go hand hand in hand to create the best possible outcome for the for the enterprise. I don't think this exactly fits now, but I did want to say one of the things that you just mentioned is is important for a number of reasons. Because merit, you talked about merit largely in terms of uh, objective differences of starting points, right? There's also subjective experiences. And so while the leaders need to be aware of their unconscious biases, um, they also need to be aware that their objective experience will be that people put themselves forward for opportunities, promotions, experiences, um, unequally as a function of how they have been socialized. So there was just a really interesting paper that came out in management science about how female software engineers are significantly less likely to um, uh, advertise in their CVs programming languages that they actually know because they've the, the the research was done in a very careful way that confirmed um, these coders' actual abilities in these different programming languages because we all know people sort of overemphasize or might exaggerate the extent to which they know stuff, but the female software engineers were much less likely to even state what they did truly know, right? So it becomes even harder to understand whose performance is going to be equal when people are differentially socialized to be modest or confident. I, I think, I think Celia, it's, it's a brilliant uh, point. And I think it is about developing an appreciation of what I call different styles, different approaches, and how you basically externalize your talent and your accomplishments. Historically, as you know better than I do, that we confused style with leadership. If you're more extrovert, you are more outgoing, you are more outspoken, you're putting yourself out there more than the others, you generally will be considered as a strong leader. And if you're taller, whiter, and maler. Yeah, exactly. But... The research has proven that there are all kind of leaders. They're introvert, they're understated, they're extroverts. They are people who are very humble in their approach. They have a different kind of a value system. They, so therefore, I think it's very important and it comes to my point of broadening your frame of reference, broadening your imagination, and let go of your unconscious biases. And, and that's one of the reasons, Celia, we have not seen as much progress on diversity and inclusiveness as we should have with all the best intentions. And the reason is that we have not conditioned the organizations or leaders to recognize 
all these different range of personalities or styles which can be equally affected. So, for example, exactly to your point, women or even men from Eastern cultures are generally understated, but they could be equally effective leaders. So, the organization need to condition itself to reach out and recognize and explore and not just go by a one stereotypical view of leadership or uh, job effectiveness or performance effectiveness. And the other point I would make is that over the years we have seen organizations have really become global, but the orientation of the leaders, generally speaking, still remains quite local. The language, their way of looking at things, their way of developing talent still remains quite local. Even though there have been improvement, there have been more awareness. So operating and business model of these companies, which is global, has to reflect into the culture and into the talent composition. It has to reflect in the ranks and file of that organization. And it's absolutely important. So I 100% agree with your point on that. So we've talked a lot about the importance of top talent for maintaining performance. What are the challenges for you right now in attracting and developing top talent? What are the challenges you're facing right now as a leader more generally? Our environment is very complex and multidimensional. We are seeing a range of factors at play. We have economic growth and productivity challenges. We have socioeconomic issues, sustainability, demographics, as well as technology is evolving very, very rapidly. So in my view, I think the employees, what they're really looking for, and by the way, all those factors are putting a lot of pressure on what I would say, capitalism, democracy, and sustainability. It seems that these three dimensions are not in the right balance. And therefore, I think it's very important for the organization and enterprise cultures And I think it's also going to be very important for the employees. And they will look towards the leadership of an enterprise and organization and say, is this organization is trying to create a better balance amongst those three dimensions? Or is it overly focused on one or the other? So I think that is going to be one of the major drivers of attracting top talent and shaping the culture and the the future of the organization. Because... Today's and tomorrow's workforce is very aware of these challenges and they expect the organizations to lead from the front and be constructive in resolving some of these challenges. So when you say that capitalism, democracy and sustainability are out of balance, out of balance in which way? You know, if you look at if you look at uh, the socioeconomic issues, if you look at the populist movements, if you look at the sustainability challenges and environmental challenges, all those things have to be adjusted because we cannot continue to operate an economy which creates serious environmental issues, which creates major socioeconomic divides, and which then obviously undermines democracy and some of the other systems. So these things need to become in more balance because the economic actors and the policymakers have to think about that how do we not only deliver growth, productivity, 
but at the same time address the environmental and social issues so that there is a more equitable and more sustainable economy and society. And therefore, we don't have a exert pressure on one way or the other. So I think that is a very important, to my mind, a balance which we have to strike. I mean, if you look at all the uh, this uh, momentum around ESG is exactly because I think we are reaching the planetary boundaries of continue to draw upon the resources of the planet to fuel the economic growth. And it's just not sustainable. And with the economic growth, then comes all the other issues of polluting the environment, the carbon emission and things of those nature. So it's, they all interact with each other. And I think if you don't get the capitalism and sustainability right, is going to undermine the whole system of democracy. As we have seen in some of the, some of the markets, some of the regions and countries around the world. Capitalism won't be very effective in the, in a post, post-apocalyptic world. Yeah. <laughs> or I guess, I don't know, maybe that's, that will be the first thing to emerge. Um, how, how do you see publicly traded corporations taking the lead in that shift? If you look at all these factors we touched upon, I think there is a push and pull. I think there is a lot of external uh, investor demand, the policymaker demand, and other civil societies demand on the companies and commercial enterprise to be more society, more responsible from an environment and societal point of view. And I think there is also a recognition that if you throw in the rapid evolution of technology, that they are not mutually exclusive. It needs more imagination. It needs a different thought process where you can say we can have an integrated approach where we can create a better commercial outcome. We can uh, make the societies better off. And at the same time, we can address the more environmental issues. And you will see increasingly your investors, your rating agencies, your policymakers, they will be demanding from the commercial enterprise to adjust their approach to reflect these priorities as well, rather than just focusing on profit and shareholders' value. It has to be a stakeholders' value, which includes all these constituencies, your shareholders, employees, society, and the overall economy, and all the rest of it. And what gives you hope for the future? Uh, I would say simply human spirit and the new generation. I am fundamentally very optimistic. We have gone through historically great challenges and human spirit has always prevailed. And with every successive generation, I think there is a greater awareness. There is a much greater focus on the issues we are facing today. And so I remain very optimistic. I think the next generation because of the media, because of how they are growing up in a connected global world. They don't have just the local orientation or local point of view or local biases. They have a much broader view of the world and their ability to process these issues is much better than I would say previous generations. Well, I agree with you on that. It is, it is the, one of the best things about being a professor is that I get to spend my life surrounded by 
up and coming generations that have more creativity and stamina and vision than I could ever imagine them having. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Naveed. I am really looking forward to us doing work together in the years to come. It's a pleasure, Celia, and uh, I thank you for your leadership, your innovative approach to build this center for responsible leadership. And of course, this particular initiative or podcast, I think absolutely uh, points towards the fact that the world really needs responsible leadership. Responsible is a podcast from the Center for Responsible Leadership at Imperial College Business School and is sponsored by City. Created with audio and editing support from Jack Monahan and Robert Mutri, who are Pronk Productions. I'm Celia Moore. I'll see you next time.